Ladies and gentlemen, it's the Lord of the Dance Seti. Please welcome Richard Herring. Hello and welcome to my newest podcast of my many, many podcasts, Lord of the Dance Seti, which, uh, in which I'm going to try and keep you up to date with what's going on on the road during my current tour, which is also called Lord of the Dance Seti, almost like this is publicity for it or something. Uh, let you know where I'm going to be going next. It is publicity for the tour, but hopefully there's lots more than that. Um, I'm going to tell you some stories that didn't make it into the show. I'm going to tell you some stories that might be in future shows. I'm just going to, I'm going to try out some new bits and pieces on you, so uh, you may see these on stage one day, yeah, some of the stories I'm going to tell you. Um, and some of these stories you might know if you've uh, read my blog or my Metro column. Uh, a lot, but I'm, I'm not trying to give you any spoilers for the show. Really, I might mention some of the routines. I might do one or two of the jokes, but um, really, none of the stuff that appears in this podcast will be in Lord of the Dance City, the show, um, unless it's really brilliant. And I think I have to put that in. But uh, so far, none of this will be in the show. I want to just give you some background to why I put the show together, uh, what the idea was, what's going on, all the little secret themes that are in there that all the reviewers have so far missed, so I thought I'd... It's like a director's commentary of the show a little bit, I suppose, without giving too much away. Um, Lord of the Dance Settee, some people don't get that. It comes, as I will describe in the show, from a childhood, childhood misunderstanding of uh, dance, dance review may be, for I am the Lord of the Dance Settee, which I genuinely believed were the lyrics to that particular hymn uh, when I was five years old, before I could read and find out that that was wrong. Um, and... Also, you may remember that joke from uh, this morning of Richard Judy, which I did in 1999, which is sort of a, also one of the points of the show. I thought it was a good title for the show. I thought it was good to have a title that was a joke. But this show is a little bit about looking backwards and looking forwards. A lot of the routines at least start from an old idea. It was almost like I thought, let's look back over all the decades of my career so far and let's take something that I've done before and fly with it and see where it goes Uh so I might talk about that at some point during the, this run in a bit more detail. But a lot of the routines start from somewhere and hopefully I then take them on uh, to somewhere new. But the, the, I wanted to look backwards and look forwards. I feel like I'm at a pivotal point in my life, I suppose, with both my professional life and my personal life. Um, again, this is a slight spoiler for the for the end of the show, but you should most of you probably know by now I'm about to become a, a father. So that's obviously going to change my personal life quite a lot but also having gone for 25 years as a professional comedian um and just trying to work out where I'm going next with that with stand-up with writing uh, I had quite a pivotal uh, Edinburgh fringe experience last year with this show uh, and with the play I wrote uh, I Killed Rasputin which just really did not sell anywhere near enough tickets to uh, make back some of the money that uh, I knew I was going to lose some money, but uh, it ended up being quite a lot of money. Uh, and also I felt a little bit, um, you know, my I still haven't got to the point, I suppose, in my career where I can guarantee an audience, even in Edinburgh, even after I've been up for 23 Edinburghs, uh, I still have to fight for every ticket sale, as I do on tour. And at this tour, I'm up against 110 other comedians who were touring in the autumn and the spring around the country so there's it's a very competitive market and I obviously have to think a little bit about where I'm going so this show is 
although I don't think you would necessarily notice this too much, I'm looking back at being five years old and doing Lord of the Dance City. I'm looking back at being you know, 14, 15, 16 years old and the way I was feeling there, looking back at being 40 and where I am now. There's a big routine about one of my first jokes I ever came up with. Uh, and, you know, I think there's... For me, that's quite an interesting thing about it. I didn't want to do a massive theme show. I wanted to release myself from that pressure. I've done big themes... Uh, for the last few years, I've done politics with Hit Moustache, Religion, Christ on a Bike, Love, What is Love Anyway, uh, Death, We're All Going to Die, Spam Javelins, Talking Cock. They've been quite big themes, so I kind of wanted to keep it loose, but it does sort of tie together. Uh, dance is, and movement is a, a sort of theme running underneath it all, and I might tell you one of the stories that there wasn't enough time to get into the show uh, later on. Yeah, I mean, this sort of sounds negative. It doesn't sound very funny. It's a funny show. I'm hoping I'm hoping this podcast will be funny. Uh, but it, I feel like the ripe fruit of youth is hopefully turning into slowly maturing wine of old age. But uh, um, I, the, the show's pretty si- I want it to be silly. Uh, as I think I've said in uh, How Not to Grow Up, we don't stop playing because we grow old we grow old because we stop playing it's not my original quote I don't know why I've just quoted myself um so in this show there's a lot of dancing around and jumping up on sofas uh but then I need because I'm old I need to take a bit of a breath and contemplate my own mortality so I wondered I think at the starting point of this show I kind of wondered if it was possible to do a show that didn't have any swearing or anything rude in it I've obviously quite well known for that didn't entirely succeed in that but there's very minimal actual swearing or very rude stuff in the actual show. I kind of wondered if I could do a stand-up show that was rigorous and intelligent enough for the material to appear in something like Stuart Lee's Alternative Comedy Experience, but crowd-pleasing and un- universal enough to also appear on something like a Michael McIntyre's Roadshow. Is it possible to do a show that appeals to both those audiences? Um, of course, I've never been on either of those shows, and it's very unlikely I will be, but it was more about <laughs> trying to come up with comedy that was still good, but was still had maybe more mass appeal I don't know I don't think my stuff will ever have a kind of mass appeal but would work if you stuck it in front of that audience um I mean Eric Morecambe I think would have been someone who could have been on both of those shows uh and that's obviously a a high thing to aim for and there have been a few actual comedians who have done both of those shows so it is it's a possible thing uh to do but I suppose what the show is also doing is realizing that I'm an older man than I once was that Jumping around on a sofa is something that's not really something I could, should be doing. I mean, the routine I talk about that I did when I was 18 or 19 is a massive slapstick uh, routine. Uh, that has, when I was at the uh, Battersea Arts Centre doing a preview, I did manage to quite seriously damage my leg by trying to jump over the arm of the sofa on stage and just crack my shin uh, against it. So it is uh, slightly uh, dangerous. But I think there's also something about acknowledging that maybe my career has not progressed Uh, in the way that maybe I might have hoped it would have done. Uh, And whether that's a good or a bad thing, I think in some ways it's a good thing. Uh, But uh, it's it's been a struggle out on the road over the last 12 years to build an audience, which I've done from even after the TV shows we did in the late 90s. We weren't, uh, neither of us were very popular in terms of live audiences. Uh, And with my first solo shows, I was playing to sort of 50 or 60 people. And over the last decade, I've built that up to generally playing to 200, 300 people, sometimes bigger than that, sometimes still smaller than that. Uh, My ultimate aim has been, over the last 10 years, to get to the point where when I get to Wolverhampton on the tour, I get to play the massive 1,000-plus seater room in the Civic Hall, 
uh, rather there's various uh, the reason I think that's become a thing in my career is because there's lots of different rooms <laughs> at uh, at the Wolverhampton uh, Civic Hall uh, and I've kind of worked my way up gradually to slightly bigger ones uh, uh, but in the last couple of years I've actually gone down a set there was a tiny little room above a pub then I moved into a bigger room in the main building then a then a sort of the bar which was slightly bigger than the room and then into the into the the Wolfram Hall, I think it's called, which is pretty big, too big. Uh, I've done that a couple of times. And then I've gone back uh, into the Slade rooms, which are a lovely 150 seat rooms where I've sort of stayed stagnant for the last few years, just about selling out. So if you come into Wolves, you know, it's an important one in my mind. Uh, will I ever get to the point where I would ever be able to build that up to an audience of one or 2,000 Wolverhampton people? It's very, very unlikely, but that's why it's a symbolic thing I suppose uh, I'd only need to live another 3,000 years I think in order to gradually build my audience up to do that so that's that's another one of the thoughts behind the show I suppose is just trying to ascertain where I am in my career uh, is it sustainable to carry on We've, I've been having a lot of fun on the road I really love being on the road uh, and luckily Many of you do come and see me. Enough people come and see me, but you like to keep me a little secret from everyone else, from your friends and stuff. You know I'm really good at doing stand-up, but you don't want to tell anyone about it. So I guess partly come and have come and see, come and have a go. Thinking hard enough, and then he said, "There, come and see the show." Uh, if you haven't seen me before, I'll tell you where I'm going to be on. But uh, I just want to do some funny stories on here, uh, and hope that you will be entertained by that. I danced in the morning when the world was begun. I danced in the moon and the stars and the sun. So I'll try and keep you up to date with where I'm going on tour and where I've been on tour. Maybe as I do this but more regularly, I'll be able to talk a bit more about actual gigs and anything that funny that has happened at them. I've done quite a few gigs last year, about 20 or so. Uh, out of all of those, I suppose, one of the most memorable is the one in Loughborough Town Hall on the 30th of October, not because it was nearly Halloween, though that was exciting, uh, but because Loughborough is where I lived between 1972 and 1976, when I first was led to believe that the lyrics to Lord of the Dance were Dance, Dance, wherever you may be from, and the da- Lord of the Dance settee. Uh, and I went to Emmanuel Primary School, and that's where that happened, and I envisaged that. That is also the place, uh, if you remember the story from As It Occurs to Me, where the naughty dog uh, did a poo outside the window. In fact, I had done a massive shit in my own tiny shorts and thought to blame a naughty dog which was clever of me but that was one of the other memories of a manual school when I was five or six years old uh, and the Lord of the Dance City I can visualise the assembly it has now been knocked down and destroyed that school which is all very well partly I think because of the poo that I did and that went on the floor the school was ruined <laughs> and they decided uh, to close it down um, it was interesting, we arrived in Loughborough about lunchtime, uh, my tour manager, George, haven't really got a nickname for him yet, as I do with some of the tour managers. It's still too early to really work out just what kind of guy he is. Pretty useless, I think, I think is probably the answer. That is not fair. I'm only joking, George, if you're listening. Uh, he's, he's a very hard-working young man. And for once, I've got someone younger than me to do my heavy lifting. Uh, when to the last couple of times, I've had someone about the same age as me, which seems wrong to make them lift things up. Um, I hope you're enjoying, by the way, all the music coming in and out. I'm not quite sure about the bright vocal on this. I'm using GarageBand, uh, and I don't think I like the echoing effect on this 
uh, narration, but you know, you're going to stick with it for the moment. And maybe for the next bit, I'll try something else. That's what I meant to do, but I forgot. And I'm not going back now. Uh, the first thing I saw when I arrived in Loughborough was a heavily pregnant woman, woman smoking a cigarette, which I have not seen in the streets for a long time. People, at least if women, pregnant women, if they're going to do that, tend to hide somewhere and do it. This woman was openly smoking the street, which I quite enjoyed. Uh, and it did feel, going back to Loughborough, that they had left, since I'd left in 1976, that they had l- frozen the town in time as a tribute to me, knowing that I would go on to be the amazing person I am. It was like stepping through a portal into you know, Gary Sparrow-like past. Where, and I thought, well, maybe I'll just pop into a pub and have sex with the first barmaid I see, if she's up for it, you know, because my wife would never find out, because Loughborough is in 1976 still, whereas I am, when I leave Loughborough, I'll be back in 2014, it would have been then. Um, could just keep on going back and forth but, but I decided not to do that because I do love my wife so, so it was unlike Gary Sparrow uh, it was I don't in Loughborough uh, town I have played before there was about 100 people in which I was quite pleased with is a 400 seater so I think that will be the story of the tour to be honest um, me quarter filling uh, venues not if you come and see it though hey if you're listening to this um, and uh, I decided to whip up some controversy in Loughborough by tweeting rude things about Loughborough um, and uh, like, for example, I did a very smelly fart in Costa and uh, I then tweeted that I'd actually slightly improved the overall smell of Loughborough by getting that fart into it. Um, and uh, you know, I was looking at things that had like adverts for the iPhone 5 up in the Vodafone window. You know, it, it was even the bits that have moved forward in time are still in the past. Uh, it seemed to be very much a town for elderly people, uh, but... Uh, Perhaps I'd missed the Pied Piper-style exodus of children by leaving when I did. Or maybe just mothers when they realise they're going to have a child that's going to live in Loughborough. They just smoke in order to kill it. And that's, you know, just to save it from having to live in Loughborough. It's a horrible place. (laughs) And I was quite relieved uh, that I had got to leave there. I also have a lot of affection for it. I'm only taking the piss. Uh, I'm allowed to say this because I once lived there. Um... And uh, interestingly, the girl I lived next door to was sort of my first girlfriend, her parents. And during the show, I took the piss out of the local paper. I said, oh, I'm worried about the review I'll get in the Loughborough Advertiser or whatever it would be called, saying they could make or break my career with a good or a bad review. And then I made the reviewer, who I didn't know was definitely in there, think about what he was doing with his life, critiquing a failed comedian in a pointless newspaper. But the Loughborough Echo journalist, as it turned out, was actually called Laughed with me about this afterwards and had my photo taken with him and then wrote quite a snotty review of the show. So <laughs> that was all good and well and good. And another thing I like to do on tour, uh, which I wrote about in my blog on the way to Northampton, my only gig so far in 2015, is whenever I'm in a service station, I like to steal one pick-and-mix suite. Just one. It's a sort of protest against the overpriced nature of pick-and-mix. I see myself as a Robin Hood stealing from the rich pick-and-mix magnates and giving myself diabetes. Uh, And very slowly, because I'd be interested to see if they will arrest me for stealing one pick-and-mix, which I think they would look ludicrous. But then on the other hand, I'm kind of openly admitting to doing this on podcasts and radio shows as much as I can. And if they add together all the sweets I've stolen, you know, and especially at the ridiculous price they charge, like one fifty nine for three sweets, I, you know, I actually have stolen quite a lot of uh, property. I tend to steal the kind of those blue and pink. They're like a cola bottle, but they taste of bubblegum. I'm not even sure what they were. But someone actually got in touch with me to say that um, there was a Facebook group set up 
looking out for me. They'd heard me talk about this on my podcasts on the, the Richard Harris Leicester Square Theatre podcasts, and they were going to warn people who worked in W.A. Smith in service stations to look out for me hanging around the pick and mix. Uh, and uh, people have left comments saying they will try and do that, which just made the game more exciting for me. It's a game of cat and sugar mouse. Uh, and I went into a... I warned them on Twitter that I was going to do it. I said, I'm on the M1 and I'm going to pop into a service station and steal a pick and mix. Uh, and I did that and I got away with it. And I took a photo of it and everything. So I am the ultimate winner uh, there. Um, but I did, if you are worried about that, I did also buy £1.59. I spent £1.59 on a 50 centilitre bottle of water. So I reckon WH Smiths are going to keep afloat despite uh, me stealing from them. And also, I didn't know this, but I'd, I'd just been out uh, for Sunday lunch with my friend and enemy, um, Grub Smith, who you might, you might know I fought against in the other boat race in 2004. He was one of the opponents. Um, and he had given me the norovirus, and um, I felt a bit weird in the morning. And then as I drove, as we drove up to Northampton, I, did, I felt fine again. And uh, I felt fine all the way through the gig. It was Doctor Theatre. But on the way back, my wife rang me and said she was feeling unwell. And then I started to feel unwell. I thought, that's psychosomatic. And then got home. My wife was being sick. My heavily pregnant wife, I should say, was being sick. Uh, and I was, I, her symptoms were like half an hour ahead of mine. So it was like, what? not only was I concerned about my wife and unborn child, obviously, but I was watching my own future playing out in front of me in an horrific way. I was listening to the sounds and knowing that that was going to happen. So thanks to Grub Smith. With friends like you, who needs enemas? I'm so proud of that joke uh, that I, I don't care how many times I say. As it turned out, I had a quite glancing blow from uh, the Ebola virus. Sorry, the norovirus. Uh, though Northampton had supposedly there had been a rumour that there was an Ebola virus in Northampton. So you know, I had been joking about that on the way up, and then the joke was on me as I puked and diarrheaed my way through the evening. But I, I, I didn't get hit too badly. I lost about four pounds. I thought once I'd got the norovirus, so I was kind of hoping to be hit quite badly by it so that I would lose loads of weight, but I, 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 it was a sort of day off. But I'd just like to say to you on in the front row from the Northampton gig, if you ended up with the norovirus after that gig, I'm very sorry, but, you know, that some people would pay extra to get my germs sprayed all over them. When I needed a Okay, I'm going to try classic vocal now, see if that makes any difference to anything. One of the themes of the show is dance. It's very cleverly hidden away in there. It's about movement and inertia. There's a lot about moving around, about staying still. It's about being on your own versus being accompanied by other people. I don't enjoy dancing. I never have. Well, I'm going to tell you the story of when I initially did uh, start enjoying it. I don't enjoy watching other people dance, as I say in the show. I think it's kind of the oddest thing to do, to pay to watch an adult dancing. It's the worst medium for artistic expression. And if you are a professional dancer, you should be ashamed of yourself and everything you've done. And look who it is who's saying that to you. It is me. But I can actually remember the moment that dancing became something I didn't want to do anymore. And I had enjoyed dancing, of course. As a child, before you were self-conscious um, and you just enjoyed doing everything. But I can remember the moment my heart broke and I realised I would never try to dance again. <laughs> Uh, there have been a moments when it has happened. Um, and it was when I was at Fairlands Middle School, and it, I went to my first school disco. I must have been about nine, ten years old. And we were in Fairlands Cheddar School Hall. Uh, big disco, 
dancing around with all the other kids, having the time of our lives, just really going for it. And I can remember coming out of the hall and um, into the... I can remember the feeling of the cold air hitting as we were sweating and uh, we were sort of all excited and full of hope and me and my friends were all together laughing. And then one of my friends, Steve, he took me to one side and he said, Rich, you were terrible at dancing. You, are, you don't realise you were awful. It was a, a nasty thing for him to do, but we, we were children and that's the way children sometimes are. Though I think he probably has been like it his whole life. Um, and uh, and that, that moment, it made me feel terrible. I'd had such a nice time. So I think that was one of the reasons that I turned against dance. This is a story that I did try to tell in the, within the show, but there's so many funny things to talk about that this one is lost because then I'll go on in future episodes to tell you about some of the other times where dance has become meaningful to me and there is one of course in the show which again if you've read the book How Not to Grow Up you'll know about about watching some disabled children dancing to Dancing in the Moonlight by Top Loader which is very it's worth the entrance fee alone to see that who reminded me about what a wonderful thing it is but it's kind of interesting isn't it to have to have that to be able to remember the moment that it, it all changed. Uh, and then I, think, I guess we all have those seminal moments in our lives where someone destroys our confidence. Uh, and I suppose I have danced live on TV in this one, which is not Judy. I danced uh, to the uh, Barry Manilow song, My Name is Lola, with Trevor and Natalie. Uh, and uh, that was live on TV. I don't think I'll ever do Strictly Come Dancing. I have not been asked yet, but you know, the kind of celebrities they have on there, I would have a chance of being asked. Um, I suppose the only thing that, as I get older, I would like about dancing is that it keeps you fit. And, uh, you know, I'm a little bit of a mover. So, I'll never say never. If you're listening, Strictly Come Dancing, get in touch. I think my mum would like it if that was on. But <laughs> I have a feeling uh, I wouldn't be terrifically good at it. Oh no, that was much worse than that last uh, vocal. I'll try and look into getting rid of the reverb on this. It's a new thing to me. Uh, if you have any ideas of how to do that, you might like it. It sounds like we're in a little uh, echoey room, uh, but uh, I'll try and do better in the future. So, look, I'll quickly let you know where I'm going to be on tour in up-and-coming dates. Um, you can go to richtowing.com slash L-O-T-D-S slash tour to see... All of these, and then after this, I'm going to be telling a long story that I don't think I've ever done anywhere before, and uh, that isn't in the show, and that is about masturbating in a caravan. So you might want to stay tuned for that. But before we get to that, I'll tell you where, where's coming up. On uh, the 20th of February, I will be at Colchester Arts Centre, which is always lots of fun, in a kind of spooky church. It's cold, and there's... The dressing room's got like some uh, uh, statues of dead soldiers in there. It's quite exciting. Uh, on the 21st, I'll be at the Ellsbury Waterside. On the 22nd, I'll be at the Exeter Northcote. And the 23rd of February, I'll be at King's Theatre in Cheddar, which is not selling great this year. So if you're a Cheddar person, I mean, I don't know why I'm telling this. You're not listening to the. You haven't got access to the internet, have you? So that will be no good to you. Uh, and then take you through the rest of February. 26th of February, Nottingham Glee. 27th of February, Wolverhampton Civic. It's the big one. We'll see how we do there. Uh, 28th of February, Salford Lowry. And then 1st of March, Chorley Little Theatre. And then there's gigs in Brighton, Crawley, Maidenhead, Canterbury, Reading, which I'm afraid is sold out. Didcot, Winchester, 
Bristol. It goes on. Uh, I will tell you more about those as we hopefully do some more episodes of this podcast. If you enjoy it, um, let me know. If you've liked it, let me know what you think of my garage band skills. I'm suspecting you will not like them all that much. But um, any uh, tips will be welcome on how to make them better. And thank you to Christian Riley for doing the music at the start. And the Dubliners and Top Loader, especially Top Loader, I've been quite rude about who I have <laughs> used other seconds of their music from, I'm guessing legally. But, you know, I'm a man who steals pick and mix. You know this about me. So go to richtraining.com slash L-O-T-D-S slash tour. Um, if you keep coming and seeing my live shows, then basically I can carry on doing all the free podcasts. That's more or less how it works. If you can't come to the live shows and you still want to contribute, go to gofasterstripe.com slash badges. You can make a one-off or monthly donation. And if you do make a monthly donation, you get a badge, you get access to an exclusive channel full of loads of extras that you can't get anywhere else, which will include backstage interviews with most of the people we've had recently from Leicester Square Theatre Podcast. There's also some backstage things from Meaning of Life. There's occasional interviews I do with other people I've put up there. And in the next few weeks, I think we'll be putting up some of the extras we filmed for the now defunct This Morning of Richard, Not Judy DVD. So if you just want to pay a pound a month, that would really help us carry on making Leicester Square Theatre podcasts. Something like this doesn't cost anything apart from lots of time and my dignity. Um, but uh, it's getting dark here in Shepherd's Bush, so I'll... This is the kind of thing that gets it into the show of Lord of the Dance City, though it isn't in this particular show. There's something in this as a story, uh, though it's a story that I've reluct- been reluctant to tell because it's embarrassing over the years, but I've found those can often be the, the best ones. So I'll share this with you. I think I've, I did have a, a couple of weeks where I did this as stand-up, I think, but um, most of you will not have, have heard this story. Uh, and then that will be the end of this week's Lord of the Dance City podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it so far it'll get better we'll work out the technical issues and also there'll be less of me prattling on about where i am in my career and stuff and more of me telling funny stories and doing jokes so here it goes shame is an overrated emotion i think it largely springs from an ethical system that likes to pretend we're not animals because the things we feel ashamed of are generally when we have given into our instincts and shame only comes when like the naked apple-eating adam and eve we realize we might be judged I don't think we should feel ashamed of the times we behave like humans. Rather, we should feel proud of ourselves on those occasions when we aren't selfish, mean-spirited or lecherous. Religions, religions seem to punish people for being people with laws policed by others who are pretending they aren't subject to the same base desires, which is all a strange introduction to a story that serves as a confessional to a shameful secret that I've kept my whole life, which, with the benefit of hindsight, is a minor, if ridiculous, misdemeanor, but one I kept because I was ashamed of what I'd done. I was 17 and going out with my first girlfriend, and though we'd undoubtedly been together for over a year by this stage, we'd still not progressed beyond what was then called heavy petting, though even now I don't know what activities that term encompasses, and I'm pretty sure we were very much at the lighter end of that spectrum, mainly having done some kissing. My girlfriend's dad, I'm sure, suspected and feared that we were much more sexually active than we were. He needn't have worried. We both adhered to the rules and believed the warnings and were almost as innocent as the lambs in the field. Seriously, I was a good three years away from losing my virginity. My girlfriend's father did not need to worry. We spent a lot of time together and I was up at their family home near to in Shipham they were quite near to each other quite regularly and on this particular occasion was going to stay overnight 
but not in my girlfriend's bedroom, heaven forfend, but in the family caravan that was kept in the back garden, safely locked outside, away from temptation, even though temptation had been resisted for many months now without such extreme measures, though nighttime supposedly is more tempting than daytime when no one can see the disgusting things you are doing. So ensconced in my separate home, I settled down to sleep, but being 17 years old and not getting any form of release from my girlfriend, I decided to pleasure myself. I used some toilet tissue to ensure that the family's pristine caravan was not soiled, but still fearful that my onanistic sojourn might be discovered and the family would realise that I masturbated. I'm sure they had no idea. I felt the need to dispose of all the evidence. In hindsight, I don't know why I didn't just put the tissues in a pocket and wait till I was home to bin them, or burn them if I was really concerned, or perhaps I was feared that my girlfriend's father would frisk me in the morning to check that nothing was untoward. I think maybe it was a largish clump of tissue and I was afraid it was too big to hide in one go, needing some great escape-style committee to come up with a way of sneaking out of the caravan in tiny pieces and trampling it into the dirt. But I had no time for that, and fear of discovery overcame logic, and I decided the safest way to get rid of this literal mess was to take advantage of the elevated height of the caravan and throw the incriminating clump of tissue and gametes over the high fence into the next-door garden. Because, of course, there was no way that would lead to discovery. I was paranoid. Uh, so I don't know why I was so paranoid uh, and why I didn't consider that the neighbours might find the tissue, realise that it was not theirs, work the trajectory back to the caravan and then have the soiled paper sent to a lab for analysis. They would determine that the hanky contained the spermatozoons of a teenager and send detectives to take DNA samples from all the local lads to find out who had perpetuated and perpetrated this heinous crime. It may be unlikely, but seriously, how was throwing it over a fence any better than just putting it in a bin? Even the bin in the caravan. Were their family likely to examine its contents when they emptied it and work out what was in there? But shame was in control here, and as long as uh, we all saw and as long as all sign of my nocturnal emissions were outside the confines of the Garden of Eden, then I figured I was safe. So I pushed the window open, having to open it to its full extent so I could stretch my arm over the fence, and with the evening's final flick of the wrist, the tissue was gone. My secret was safe for all eternity. No one, one would ever know what I had done, except that unbeknownst to me, the window operated by means of a long metal rods that fitted into metal cylinders, presumably so the window could stay open at whatever angle and gap you desired, and by opening the window to its fullest extent, I'd completely released the rods from its tubes, one of the rods from its tubes. So when I came to shut the window, somehow I ended up completely bending that rod, buggering it up completely. The window would no longer shut, the system was damaged enough to mean it would have to be expensively repaired by an expert. My minor masturbatory misdemeanour had been trumped by actual vandalistic style damage to property. Who says there is no God? A lesser youth may just have kept quiet and hoped the damage would go unnoticed for long enough for the criminal to remain undiscovered, but I was honest and good within certain parameters, and I fessed up immediately to the window, not anything else. Of course, the family, not unreasonably, wanted to know how such an unlikely accident had occurred. Why did I open the window so wide? It would need to be swung at over 180 degrees for such damage to be sustained. I couldn't tell them the truth, so I just went red and looked at the ground and said I'd just been opening the window to let in some air, and had just pushed it uh, too hard somehow, forcing the window up to the end of its rods. That was my explanation. My girlfriend's father was unsurprisingly unconvinced and speculated that during the night my girlfriend had snuck down to sleep with me and I'd pulled her in through the window to avoid being caught. The chance would have been a fine thing. 
Of course, this explanation made no real sense either. Surely it would cause less, cause less kerfuffle if I just let her in through the door, rather than struggling to heave her through a window, even if the window was on the blind side of the caravan from the house. But it was hard to think of another explanation as it was to believe my unlikely story. But of course, I couldn't tell them the truth. I didn't even tell my girlfriend. Of course not. That would have been She would have been the most embarrassing confidant. Even though... He occasionally brought it up over the next few weeks. I stuck to my story. I'm sure he was convinced I'd been up to no good with his young daughter. I thought I would take the sordid tale to my grave, but actually the truth sets me free. I behaved like a human, quite a grubby, stupid, young human, but a human nonetheless. Confession's good for the soul. Those Catholics are onto something. Though, of course, if they weren't so intent on making us ashamed of perfectly natural behaviour, then there'd be so little to confess, and at least one less broken caravan window. So an embarrassing story from my youth then, which uh, there'll be plenty of those in Lord of the Dance City, which you can see on tour. Uh, also, if you're interested, uh, instead of going to Edinburgh next year and losing lots of money, I've decided to stay in London and do all 12 of my one-man shows, well, all 11 of the existing ones, plus a new one, at the Leicester Square Theatre on Fridays and Saturdays through August and September. So if there's any of the old shows you want to catch up on, it'll be uh, Talking Cock, Christ on a Bike, Twelve Tasks of Hercules Terrace, Someone Likes Yogurt, Menage and Oh Fuck I'm 40, The Headmaster's Son, Hit the Moustache, Christ on a Bike, Oh No, I've Done Christ on a Bike, uh, What is Love Anyway? Um, we're all going to die, Lord of the Dance City, and as, as yet unannounced, new show. Uh, you can buy tickets just for one show. If you buy them for three, you get a bit of money off the ticket price. If you buy for six, you get tickets a bit cheaper. If you buy for all 12, it just costs £100 to see all 12 shows and you get a free T-shirt, which I will draw, hand-draw something on one of the posters of one of the shows for you. Surprising number of people have done that already, more than I expected, I have to say. So uh, go to the Leicester Square Theatre website if you want to book for those, uh, any of those. It'd be lovely to see you. Hopefully that will be a fun way to spend the summer it was quite a challenge i imagine um by the time this comes out i very well may have a child uh, and uh, certainly by the time i record another one of these unless my child really decides to stay inside my wife for more than is safe and possible i mean i would stay up there if i was in there i have to say what with the world am i right uh, but uh, i will it'll be a very different podcast and i'll be more tired and uh, maybe look at the world in a different way and no longer find paedophile jokes amusing and want to save the world for my child. But at the moment, I still find paedophile jokes amusing and I don't care about the future because as, as it is, I can't imagine that we're really going to have a child. But it's apparently going to happen. Uh, be lovely to see you on the road. Uh, come and see us. Uh, go to richardherring.com slash L-O-T-D-S slash tour for all those details of where I'm going to play. Tell your friends if you've seen the show and you've enjoyed it uh, and I hope you've enjoyed this new podcast um, and my pathetic attempts to edit it and to talk on my own for a long time. It was difficult. I can't work out how to get that when the thing, that little tracker thing goes right back to the beginning, I have to drag it all across and we're on 1,044 here. Uh, that's 1,044 bars long, this song. Surely we should be able to do it in time rather than, than in bars. I mean, it's a terrible song. It was in C major. It was a 4-4 signature, 120 beats per minute, if you were interested. Uh, hopefully we'll be doing more of those, often with these uh, these show podcasts. There's only one or two episodes, but I'm hoping I can keep coming up with some new stories for you, and hopefully there'll be some funny stuff happening on the road, and I'll probably try and do some little stories 
as um, at the actual theatres and give you a little taste of what it what it's like to be on tour. Thank you very much for listening. Tell your friends about this podcast. Tell your friends about the tour. Or just don't tell anyone. Keep me a secret. And me and my family will all die in a ditch. And deservedly so. (laughs) 